Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Follow our socials and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. We'll see you all there. And now, here's this week's episode. Hey guys, I'm excited to say a few words about one of today's sponsors, Seeker Music. Seeker was founded and is run by one of my very dear friends and repeat guest on And The Writer is Evan Bogart. Evan is an advocate for songwriters. He is in charge of the songwriter wing of the Grammys. He's a trustee for the Grammys. He's just a good person. And so that kind of community and culture is what Seeker is based on. They acquire only the best catalogs and sign only the best humans, including Christopher Cross, The Go-Go's, Run the Jewels, John Belly and John Ryan, Mozella, Julian Bonetta's Family Affair, Cara Diaguardi, Zara House, Future Cut, Sam Waters, Ruth Ann, Brian Morgan, and various other amazing songwriters. In fact, they have publishing deals with Keto, Robopop, Sofia Valdez, Charlie Brand, Tilly, and more. So I recommend you go follow Seeker on all their social media sites, but go follow Evan too and let them know how much you appreciate Evan's work. Because of him, we have Songwriter of the Year. Because of him, we have Songwriters added to the Album of the Year for the Grammys. And now he's got his publishing company that is a wonderful sponsor for our podcast. So thank you again, Seeker, and go check him out now. Hey guys, there's a cool company called Sound Royalties that was founded about 10 years ago. They provide funding for music creatives without ever taking ownership of their copyrights. All they need to do is see that you have a royalty stream. They don't need personal guarantees, collateral, financial statements, or credit checks. They work alongside publishers and labels, distributors, and PROs. They don't replace them. Again, all they need to know is that you have a royalty stream of at least $5,000 in a year, whether it's from mechanical performance, digital streaming sync, whatever it is. If you're interested in finding out more about Sound Royalties, check out their website or DM them on Instagram or call 844-4-ALL-MUSIC. That's right. It's 844 844- for all music to get started with sound royalties. Call them today. BMI is the champion of the creator, supporting songwriters and making sure you get paid for your creative work. More than that, BMI has an incredible team that helps guide and develop songwriters, shows you how to navigate the industry, plus provides invaluable opportunities on stages and at festivals. Bottom line, they help you with your career at all levels from those just starting out to the biggest hit makers. Just like they helped me out when I was just starting out and how they still help me out today. You can learn more at BMI.com. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, 
Ross Golan. Today's multi-hyphenate legend has written huge evergreens, produced monster jams, and founded one of the greatest bands of the 21st century. His eponymous cadence influenced a generation of rock stars and rappers. Selling tens of tens of tens of millions of albums, he has experimented musically as a true artiste does. Probably because he actually went to art school. He's a leader in the Web3... In the Web3. He's a leader in Web3, helping bridge the gap between tech and music. All the way from a one town over, this guy's most important accolade is that he's an incredible husband and father. And the writer is my dear friend, Mike Shinoda. What's up, Ross? Thank you for that incredible intro. <laughs> it's weird. It's, like, it's always fun to do when uh, like we, we're actual friends. Yeah. And so then you're, this is fun. To, I, you know, how often when you see a friend do you actually say the things that you might secretly really n- feel, you know? <laughs> but all, and also... It is fun to hear you use the podcast voice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can imagine in our session, I think we should move the pre-course over here. I'm, I'm thinking for my appetizer, I would like to order. <laughs> you want to know, this is, a true, this is true, and I don't really talk about it, but I'm dyslexic, and, I, uh, and the reason why... I started reading intros slowly and more animated is because it allows me to actually read what's next and take the time it, it needs for me to read through an intro. If I read at the pace that people speak normally, granted that I speak slowly anyway, but I would inevitably make more mistakes. I feel like there's so many, there are so many. I don't want to say that's a trick, but there's so many um, like tactics you can use in like doing what I, I I want to say we do, but like we all do different things, slightly different things. Like doing what I do, I've had to learn a lot of little tricks to overcome the parts of it that are very unnatural, like talking about yourself the amount an artist has to talk about themselves is very unnatural standing on a stage i mean standing and getting pictures taken of you for an album or for whatever unnatural like first thing people think of is like where do i put my hands why do my hands feel so awkward right um and getting our band started lincoln park started like like technically in like around 99 and I so that's a lot of time to learn like ways to cope with all the weird, uncomfortable, unnatural things. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's a plus that you guys started so early because I imagine that gets harder and harder to I think learn you, that skill set later. I think we adapt. You get you like adapt to certain parts of it and then the and then the like the times change and you've adapted in one direction yeah. and then things have gone in the other direction. You're like, oh, okay, well now I have to adapt to that too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need, I, I wish I could think of like, I know it's a very abstract thing I'm saying, but. No, it makes sense. I was going to say, and this is an aside, but the first time I heard Linkin Park 
was I was an intern at V2 Records, which was like Moby and Black Crows for a second. And there was a compilation CD that had that K Rock put out with, you know, the up and coming 20 bands. And I would imagine that they would do that every year and maybe one of them became something. But I was really in the study mode, so I wanted to know who everyone was. And this is before MySpace and stuff. This is like, you know, if you want to know them, you actually have to do some research. But I remember listening to it, and you guys were on this. It was you and Coldplay were like next to each other on this compilation. It's like that year, I think of 94 as the year where all the great bands started. But if I look at that era, there were a lot of bands that were that were helping us move past 10 years of grunge to something different. And I think you guys and Coldplay were almost like these opposite cousins that like yeah. you know that come out at the yeah. same time or like, oh we're we're gonna go in this direction, we're gonna go in that direction. But all of this is, you know, we're gonna move the the needle on what, what rock and roll is. Yeah, we I think like our I was just talking to somebody about that moment in time. I mean, because we're this year we're celebrating the um, 20th anniversary of our second album, Meteora. I, that moment in time before our first album, um, everything was very genre oriented. Like people were, you ask somebody, what do you listen to? And they'd say exactly what they listened to. There wasn't this like, oh, I listen to everything or I listen to these types of artists. It was like, I listen to uh, this type of metal. I listen, listen to this type of rap. That's it. And even sitting at a, I remember sitting in a, um, like you said, I was, I was an art student. Like I, I always thought I was going to be a, a, like a painter or an illustrator or something like that for, for a living and music was just for fun. And I remember sitting in art class in high school. Oh, and actually junior high, junior high, like, like sixth, seventh grade. Um, and we were practically enemies with the rock table. Like I just mostly listened to hip hop. And if you listen to rock, like you weren't my friend. I had one friend who I who listened to rock music. And eventually we started educating each other. Like that was um, my friend, Mark uh, Wakefield. And we, he would give me like rock CDs to borrow and I'd give him rap CDs. So he was giving me like, like grunge stuff you were talking about. And I was giving him rap stuff like, like that, like golden era hip hop stuff. And eventually he's like, yo, you need to check out this, check this out. This is called Rage Against the Machine. Check this out. This is called Red Hot Chili Peppers. And it was like, oh, things are, things are mixing. Like we found the Judgment Night soundtrack together. And then eventually Mark and I started a band called Zero and Zero was the predecessor to Linkin Park. It's crazy, you know, because when you say enemies in junior high, it's literally feels like they were you guys were probably enemies for a second. It was that goo- have, you, have you ever <laughs> seen like the goofy like I don't want to say Karate Kid and movies like that. Like there were more exaggerated versions of it, but if you look at movies from that era, you it's in the movies. Like they're, you know, the the type of music you listen to was your like membership to that clique, and then, yeah you were enemies with the other cliques or at least just didn't you know at the very least you thought their taste was shitty that's funny <laughs> you know yeah. and so yeah when we came when we were coming into our own as like what you know 
creators in a, in a sense. I don't know what else to call it, but like we started making our own. We went from listening to this stuff to making our own stuff. What introduced you things. to actually playing music? There's one thing to be a fan of music. There's a difference to play music. Yeah, I, I grew up playing classical piano. Um, I Why? did that for like 11 who, who, years. Who made you do that? My mom. Why did your mom make you do that? Uh, looked, she said it looked good on college resume. Oh. Yeah, she's like, yeah, just, you know. She never played an instrument. She always thought piano was... Um, interesting uh-huh. and um she loved and like once we started playing it in the house she loved that i i think um i've told this story a lot um i'll keep it short but she basically i i studied classical and did theory and all that for since i was like really little like i did a yamaha uh piano course when i was like somewhere around three or five years old somewhere in that range and then eventually after i did get into hi- so much hip-hop and started learning what like rap producers did um at the time they didn't even call them producers they called them djs strangely right so at the time it was djs and mcs yeah <laughs> so weird, really really weird like there was this yeah. whole like people hadn't figured out the language yet um i didn't know the language either by the way we did our first two albums and i didn't know i was a producer like rick rubin was the one who said oh no you're the you're the producer like you're the producer in the band i was I had no idea so you know over 10 years before that, um, maybe 15 or more, um, I went to my piano teacher as a little kid and I said, you know, I love this type of music and they're sampling jazz and, and blues and um, other things. I, I, you know, I don't want to play classical. I want to play that. Can you teach me how to play that? And she basically said, no. She basically said, it's not my forte. I don't know a lot about that. And, and also... It's not that you want to play that. It doesn't sound like you want to play that. It sounds like you want to play rap music and like maybe some of this pr- like adjacent rock. And how old um, were you at that point? I might have been 13-ish, 14-ish. Do you have siblings? I have one younger brother, two years younger. Does he like music? He did. He, he was better than me on the piano. Um, and yeah, he's more like, he's, a, he still plays really, he's, he's got really good dexterity. He can, he can yeah. read music very well. Um, but that was the moment where I went from trying to do all of that uh-huh. to basically she told me that, um, she suggested that I buy production gear. She suggested I buy a sequencer and a sampler and a it's keyboard. A good teacher. And that, yeah. And, and well, she's so, she was so good that she, encouraged me to quit she was literally giving up my the income from my lessons telling me to not take lessons and go pursue experimenting with this you know with making beats because she knew that the only way that you get good at that was by doing it and the there wasn't anybody to teach you there wasn't even a youtube yet so like there only there was no way i could get like an education and how to make beats other than buying stuff. Yeah. That Tascam. I bought <laughs> I, so I had a Tascam 4 track. I had yeah, a, yeah. a I had a a, a, a Kai S900 sampler uh, with a floppy d- disk that saved onto floppy disk. I have disk. both of those here. And then <laughs> yeah. and then um for for like sampling yeah. uh nerds the the S900 and 950 predated what we know as like the MPC. It was basically an MPC without pads. So the reason they did the pads is because 
prior to that, you had to have your own uh, MIDI controller to trigger it and sequence everything. So you had to buy a separate drum machine and connect the two and have the drum machine be the brain and the sampler just be the sampler. And then Akai eventually said, why, why, do we, like, why are we making a thing that has to be a slave to another person's piece of gear? Like yeah. We should put it all in one unit. Yeah. And they made the MPC. Wow. Um, when... You know, you grew up. A lot of your your story is known. You can look on Wikipedia. You've had a lot of interviews. So the brief synopsis being that you know you were raised in the valley, a real valley kid. You know, mm-hmm. Panorama City. Moved to Agora. You went to Agora High School, right? I did. I did. Um, I was when, in shout out to Woodland Hills too. I was in Woodland oh, Hills until I was like uh, twelve or so. Okay. Um, Agora High School, Westlake, Calabasas, <laughs> whatever it was. <laughs> Something was in the water when you were in high school that where there are scenes and you know if the uh, early '90s is famously Seattle, if if you know you have these pockets where you know Chicago's had a moment and you know Miami's had a moment. I mean Oklahoma City's had a moment. All these places have had a moment, but something about the Valley and those three towns produced some huge bands. Uh, what was it that? You know what was the the sauce that made that happen? Why why there then? Was it you I guys leading the way? Was it the- Incubus was before us, right? So okay. to be clear, like I remembered, what was cool. The reason I mentioned that is because they went to school in the same like school system. Like I didn't; they weren't at my school, but I knew them. I saw them live. I saw I saw them around town. And um, and they got signed. I think it was a, like Immortal Records or something, and um, put out their their first album. And it got on K Rock. It got on the radio. And so to us, to other people in town, it's like, oh, you know the story. It's like it always happens this way. Like you see somebody you know do it, and you go, oh, it can be done. And so it empowers you. You just feel like emboldened to like get there. You know, and attainability our, is a huge. It's part such of a it. huge. And yeah. and by the way, like being in LA, like especially back then, maybe less so now, but it's still true. If you if you had all the skill set and all the friend, you know, the friendships and the skill set and the and the things that we had, but we lived in Anchorage, Alaska, would not have happened. The it, the being around uh, um, in a place where you're going to make those connections and and things are at your disposal and are like in your vicinity, you can't understate the the value of that. Because like for example, you're not going to be able to just like go intern at a record label if you're out there. You're not going to be able to like um, just hop over to Sunset and see a group play and then in three months like oh they're kind of blowing up like this that whole thing is proximity matters it matters so much and we grew up in it we also by the way like we grew up in it in a way where we weren't there was no there was no sense of like jaded there was no sense of like have when none of us had moved here to make it Right, we saw people who did like they were waiting the tables and and doing all those jobs, and we were just like kids who grew up in it. And it's like, oh, that's cool. Like, good luck to you. Like, I don't know. Like, 
I mean, it's it, it's ten years earlier. It's Silverchair being kids who were in Seattle, mm. and they could, mm. you know, it was like they were there. They were a good band, but if that band was in Anchorage, they probably they were in the moment at the place, yeah. you know, and they had the skill set. Right. Um, how much did you know? You guys are a uh, a racially diverse group that grew up in a area that I don't think of as particularly diverse. I think what was nice was that we were, um, it was like you were adjacent to a lot of diversity though. Like we, I, when I grew up in, up until like sixth grade, I was in Woodland Hills. And to be clear, you know the scene in uh, if you've seen um, Straight Outta Compton, the the movie, mm-hmm. it's fictionalized, it's exaggerated, and Ice Cube gets you know bust up to the valley to like this all white school and whatever. That area that he was bust up to was where I was in school. Everyone was like, "Oh yeah, O'Shea Jackson like went to school here," and it was not all white. It was the first, at least maybe actually what may have changed between when he was. Uh, when that scene was written, I should say the thing that that scene was written about was when busing started. When I went to school there, busing was the norm. So so like 80% of the school was non-white. And I grew up in that school system where it was really diverse. I think of my f- group of friends, if there was 10 of us, I think there was like one white kid or two white kid, one mixed white kid. And that kid was Jewish and the other kid was Christian. And then everybody else was some form of brown. Yeah. And um, in case you don't know me, I'm, I'm half Japanese. Um, I got mistaken for Latino my whole childhood. People would speak Spanish to me and I was like, I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> um, I knew a little bit you, because so many of my friends- Did you grow up speaking Japanese? No, no. So somebody. I spoke more Spanish than Japanese. Right. Um, to be fair, when <laughs> <laughs> they said that, I would probably respond in Spanish. Um, but but the moving up to Agora, one of my the first criticism I had of it, my mom was like, "How are things going at school?" I was just like, "It's just so white, like it's so monochromatic." I- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Called it monochromatic as a kid. Yeah. And that was my problem with it. Again, I was listening to all rap music. Like I was already immersed in a, in a culture of like diversity and that's what we... That's, that's, well, that was what was comfortable to me. So of course, then when I was like making music, I wasn't thinking about, it didn't occur to me that like, oh, you know, um, in this type of music, a lot of people are white. It, most were people you, are white. Didn't, were you in, you know, I always say like, I, I, being, being Jewish, I'm a minority, but not necessarily, you know, an oppressed minority. People don't look at me necessarily. Maybe look at me and say, he looks well, Jewish. Well, in LA, in LA. But in LA yeah. or in Chicago where I've lived, for the most part, I've avoided most things because 
I know it exists, but the anti-Semitism hasn't really hit me super often. You know, sometimes publicly people say some crazy shit. <laughs> but, um, but for the most part, you know, I've, I've avoided it. Uh, did you find that being, um, growing up there, were, did you feel like you were out of place? Or because they were so monochromatic, or was it like, oh no, that's my? I felt it was funny because I had like uh, it was rare that I'd have a story that impacted like that was where the where the um, the discrimination or the the accidental like racism or whatever was pointed at me. It was rare that it was pointed at me. Like one example would where it was pointed right right next to me was my friend who came over. He was he was black, and he said some we were like doing playing in the front yard or something he said something about my gardener and i looked over it was my dad and i was like oh. bro like that's <laughs> right that's just like an accidental like right oh he saw he saw like a, my dad by the way my dad is like um a, a darker skin he, our family's from southern japan and they have very tan skin uh -huh. he actually gets mistaken for like maybe like native american or or some kind of indigenous like he's, yeah. he's got darker skin um he yeah so my friend like said that and i was like uh it really struck me as like this is a it was a funny accidental racism yeah. i call them an accidental and racism. even at the time you know um, that that's an accident you know what it is as we're trying to define that in this generation it, it existed we just didn't necessarily define it at the time yeah like, wow that's really it's not because right. also it was harmless like it was yeah. just it was funny and he was super embarrassed but then it was then it was funny yeah um and I think, I mean, there was you know on the on the other side there there was a there was one time or a couple times in um, you've also have to imagine like so in, in high school I dressed like the groups I was listening to okay so I was I that's how I looked like it was always my pants were hanging off my ass like everything was triple extra large backwards hat and whatever um, and. So when I was out around town, I get like I would get um, categorized if there was a security guard, if there was a police officer, whatever. I got pulled over a number of times up there because like the nice, sweet white kids who didn't dress that way weren't getting pulled over. And I actually got like I remember there's a time I got pulled over this guy by this uh, the policeman who like patrolled near the school. I went, I went off campus with friends and they all looked like me. They all dressed like me. We went off campus, ate some lunch, came back and he pulled me over for no, there was, for yeah. no reason other yeah. than he just didn't like how I looked. Yeah. And he, he, he had me with my hands on the front of the hood and everything. He, like, he, he was like making me like pull my shirt up to expose that I was sagging my pants in front and cars are driving by, going back to school, honking at me, laughing. But he was embarrassing me because he just didn't like, he, he, he said something to the effect of like, you people make it difficult for the rest of the kids. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but um, I was lucky that those experiences were few and far between like so rare for me but it gave me a, that tiny little taste of like oh this is what that feels like it's fucking horrible yeah that's definitely not accidental racism. it would be so bad yeah in that that's case that was some out. real hardcore racism yeah, just, and he was you know i got the one or two experiences with it a handful in my high school uh time i was in high school and you know like my other friends had it all the time 
you know, people who, who like dark with darker skin or whatever, he, the, that type of thing was constantly happening to them. So for me going, once we got out into the real world of, um, started touring and going to other countries where, you know, um, the race dynamics or the group dynamics between different religious parties or whatever it is, political parties, like we started to see, I, it, it, I, my first impression I remember was just like, wow, the world is actually, it's like so, I felt like it was actually way smaller. Mm. I felt like, oh, these problems are all so similar. It's just that people back home think of it one way in this mm. kind of small way. But the, yeah, it's, it, I just felt like the world was more connected than I ever imagined once we started touring. People were more similar. Hey guys, I'm excited to say a few words about one of today's sponsors, Seeker Music. Seeker was founded and is run by one of my very dear friends and repeat guest on And The Writer is Evan Bogart. Evan is an advocate for songwriters. He is in charge of the songwriter wing of the Grammys. He's a trustee for the Grammys. He's just a good person. And so that kind of community and culture is what Seeker is based on. They acquire only the best catalogs and sign only the best humans, including Christopher Cross, The Go-Go's, Run the Jewels, John Belly and John Ryan, Mozella, Julian Bonetta's Family Affair, Cara Diaguardi, Zara House, Future Cut, Sam Waters, Ruth Ann, Brian Morgan, and various other amazing songwriters. In fact, they have publishing deals with Keto, Robopop, Sofia Valdez, Charlie Brand, Tilly, and more. So I recommend you go follow Seeker on all their social media sites, but go follow Evan too and let them know how much you appreciate Evan's work. Because of him, we have Songwriter of the Year. Because of him, we have songwriters added to the album of the year for the Grammys. And now he's got his publishing company that is a wonderful sponsor for our podcast. So thank you again, Seeker, and go check them out now. Hey guys, there's a cool company called Sound Royalties that was founded about 10 years ago. They provide funding for music creatives without ever taking ownership of their copyrights. All they need to do is see that you have a royalty stream. They don't need personal guarantees, collateral, financial statements, or credit checks. They work alongside publishers and labels, distributors, and PROs. They don't replace them. Again, all they need to know is that you have a royalty stream of at least $5,000 in a year, whether it's from mechanical performance, digital, streaming, sync, whatever it is. If you're interested in finding out more about Sound Royalties, check out their website or DM them on Instagram or call 844-4-ALL-MUSIC. That's right. It's 844 844- for all music to get started with sound royalties. Call them today. BMI is the champion of the creator, supporting songwriters and making sure you get paid for your creative work. More than that, BMI has an incredible team that helps guide and develop songwriters, shows you how to navigate the industry, plus provides invaluable opportunities on stages and at festivals. Bottom line, they help you with your career at all levels from those just starting out to the biggest hit makers. Just like they helped me out when I was just starting out and how they still help me out today. You can learn more at BMI.com. 
I want to get into music, but one other question is, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of your artwork. You know, it's like mm. um, one of the best parts of going to your studio. It's like <laughs> the, there's art that you enjoy that you patronize from other artists, and then there's, you know, your art. Um, and I think that there's all kinds of influence, and some of it has, you know, uh, it, it, it comes from all over the place. Do you use the same influences in art that you do as a musician? How much of your art influences the music you make? Oh, that that's a that's a great question. Um I'd say like lit, in the literal sense, it's it's not so there's not a lot of crossover, but in the in the practice of making it, there's tons of crossover. So How in so? other in in other words, like in college once I left high school and went to college, I went to school at a school called Art Center College of Design. It's here in Pasadena. And it's like, it was described to me as like the Harvard of art schools. So it's really um, reputable, really difficult. The workload is insane. Like the, the last like three weeks of school, people would be getting like two hours or three hours of sleep a night to finish all the work that they've got to get done. Um, very, very hard. And one of the things that they teach, they teach technique, they teach aesthetic, they teach craftsmanship, they teach attention to detail and patience. And, and like, for example, I was, um, I had a class on perspective. There's a, um, and we're talking about like drawing an image that's in proper perspective, right? So there's, um, it's one of the more academic classes and there's there's definitely a right and wrong. Like if you're talking about like conceptual theories, like is this a beautiful piece? Like uh, it's a little, you know, subjective. Perspective is not subjective. Perspective is math. And so, and there were, and there were two teachers that taught the class. Um, one was a guy uh, named Gary Meyer who had like done work on like Star Wars and the very first day of class he would draw like a full, as he's, as he's talking to the class and like giving the intro to the class, he would draw a full battle scene with the Death Star and X-Wings and all this, like he'd just draw with chalk on a chalkboard in perfect perspective with a, with a yardstick as he's telling you what to expect from the class. Everyone wanted that class. The other class was this guy named Westerkamp who you had to do, like an average project in Westerkamp's class was a two foot by three foot uh, vellum uh, perspective analysis where the top half was all drawing and the bottom half was all text. And you had to do all the text with a ruler and the entire thing with graphite. If there was a smudge, if there was a wiggly line, if there was a line that was too light or too dark, for every single one of those, you would lose 5% of your grade. You had two of them, you went to a 90%. You had four of them, you're at a B minus, barely hanging yeah. on. And people would come in the first, they'd turn in a project and the very first review, they'd be getting an F. And I, it, the first week of that, two weeks of that class, I was like, this is fucking, this fucking sucks. Like I could have been in the other guy's class drawing like TIE fighters. Yeah. And I'm instead, I'm in this asshole's class, like being forced to write the letter E with a ruler. Um, by the end of it, I realized, have you ever seen Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Yeah, of course. Okay. I realized that's what we were doing. Yeah. We were doing 
in, in Jiro Dreams of Sushi, this guy is like a master of every tiny little detail and the craft that goes into the rice, the craft that goes into the, to the, the uh, nori, the craft that goes into like the sauces. Everything is perfect. It's precise and he's worked on it for decades. And if, and, and if somebody comes to work for him and starts, um, men, he starts mentoring them, they spend their first year working for Jiro, they just make rice every day that's all they do until they perfect rice and then they can move on to egg like it's years before they touch a piece of fish this is a long version this is a long story but to say that like those types of things learning them in art school learning craftsmanship and attention to detail and patience like if you're doing a big project and you fuck up this tiniest little thing but it's irreparable you start over just start over and I'm not, I'm not afraid to like look at something that I've been working on or made and say, this is like, this is gonna take some, something extraordinary to make it good. But if, it, if I do that, it'll be very good. I'm willing to do that work. So other, young, I feel like a lot of young artists don't have that in them yet, or they, maybe they never learn it, where they, they, they're willing to put in the effort to make something that's exceptional. I, I talk a lot about aging gracefully in the music business, and there's the common thing is to think that that means that the elders in the business are they have to act a certain way as they they grow in mentorship or whatever they do. But I think that that is more important for the new writers and new artists to age gracefully when they're starting to recognize that tuck your hubris and your ego away and listen because that lesson that you just gave in going through all the snares, finding that snare Dude. that that's work, <laughs> tweak it because that's that's not the right snare. That melody can be better. That melody can be better and there's a reason why we're so disciplined when it's like, no, it's that word should not be that note. It should be the half step lower that that flat six is exciting here because it's a blues reference and it's and it works, but it, it only works if you salt it so much. Yeah, the amount of, much, like the that, amount of like, like back and forth we'll do over one word midline. It's not even an important word to any yeah. listener, but to, to to me and you, the six options all color the song a different way. And yeah. and that word matters. Yeah, I think that the a lot of uh, the difference between people who aspire and people who do is sort of is is the discipline and knowing that that they have to erase and throw away and yeah. erase and also have the to have the, the like related to that effort. I I, I think of you sometimes because we've had this situation before. Um, to be in a session and say like say you're writing with people and you've you've written so many songs right and you know at a certain point um when a song has like a ceiling on it you just go yeah i know how this i i've been to this place a lot of times and this song is gonna be good but it'll never be great and it's got a fundamental flaw in its in its structure that it means we need to either completely start over or we need to change it fundamentally. If you're doing that with an artist in the room who's not you and you suggest that, there's also this, um, 
diplomacy and like ability to give and take criticism. I also, I also learned that in school, by the way. Um, you got to be really, you know, loving about the way you handle that because you, you know, if the message is, hey, I know you walked in the room with this idea. I know we worked on it for almost two hours now. And we're still like, you feel the momentum of it growing. It's, it's, it's working, it's happening. Um, I don't like it. I think it's like, I think it's gonna be okay, but I don't like it. And I think we should start over. Like to be able to have that conversation with an artist is difficult and it could be a total deal breaker. But if you can do it and you come out with something better at the end of the that process, you're gonna be so happy you did. Yeah, I mean, the, the only way you get perspective, not the way you were talking about drawing, but perspective is, is with, with time. And good collaborators and people you trust, the reason why you're put in that room is because they can expedite some of that perspective. They can, if you trust them, someone in that room should be able to say, and this is where the quality of collaborator makes a difference because some people may not have that ability. But if you have somebody, you can say, let's save as. We have this version. Let's, you know, what if we go here? You know, we have this idea. We have a little bit of time. If we walk away with just a good pre-course, then that's worth a day if you know the value of a hit. So let's just try another version. Let's try a new song, you know, like that. Keeping that session energy moving forward in a positive, creative way is, is, I like how is you a skill that. set. Yeah, I like how you said that. Um, okay, so, you know, uh, I, I said it before we started this. I said, these are the interviews that scare me because this is um, a Mike Shinoda Ross interview should be about uh, 10 episodes long. <laughs> we'll just do a whole season. So we're still like, we haven't even started with like Chester joining the band. So, <laughs> you know, uh, you guys have, you know, you guys are in zero. Incubus does their thing. Uh, probably around that time, you guys decide we want this kind of singer. What's the choice in saying we're going to add somebody? And, you know, the minute that you guys add, you know, Chester, are you starting, you know, what is that process? And, Let's start with that. Yeah, Let's just that, start with that. So we had so Mark and I started the band. We brought the other guys in that are that's who you think of. Joe as, and Brad. As, yeah, and, it was yeah. it was Joe, Dave, Brad, and Rob. Yeah. Um, and then we did a lot of showcases. We showcased for every major label around town at the time. I think there were seven, um, and all the independent labels, over a dozen of them, showcased for everybody. Like they came to our rehearsal space or they came to our concert at like a place like the Roxy or, Roxy or Whiskey. And they, we met, we had some meetings, nobody wanted to sign us. Uh, we parted ways with Mark. Um, he and I are still good friends and Mark is actually went into music management. He currently in, in 2023, he, he manages bands like Deftones and System of a Down and he does very well. Um, that was his calling. He figured that out at, at, that, at that point. Chester, we found through, um, it was actually our attorney's um, friend. So our attorney had a friend who was an attorney who represented, I think he represented Chester's old band or some people in Arizona. And he knew about Chester. He's like, yeah, this guy was in a band. He quit. He's like not doing music right now, but he should be. And like, here's his information. And we loved him. Like we we're very like slow to make a decision. So we did try out a bunch of people and it was obvious to us, like he was the dude. Um, and we didn't, and, and as we started to like make music together, 
Um, the first thing that was notable, I think, to, interesting to people when I tell them about this is that he didn't have a singing identity yet. That's Every so time he sang, he sang like other people. So it'd be like, oh, on this song, he's singing like Dave Gahn from Depeche Mode. On this song, he sounds like um, Robert Plant. On this song, he sounds like Perry Farrell and, and so on. Like Scott Weiland, uh, those were the top ones. Like every time he'd bring in a, like an idea or something, it would be one of those or something close. And it wasn't hard to tell. Like some of them he was singing in a little bit of a British accent. You're just like, what are you affecting right now? Yeah. And my, my, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just, my intuition told me, I don't love this. I love what, he, I love who the singer is that he is. I don't love when he sounds like these other people. He's just so talented, he can do it. So the effort that we went, that we like started to make was to discover who he is. And I, by the way, we were, I was doing the same thing. Like, who am I as a, as a, as a rapper, as a, at the time, like a, a producer or a, or a, like a music maker and so on. All the guys in the band, like doing that same thing, like trying to discover your musical like identity. Who introduced, there's one thing where you're uh, a, a band who is playing in, you know, well, say garages, although it's not literal garages, but like, you know, you're playing in high school. There's, you even see, oh, wow, you can get to K-Rock, which was probably the most influential radio station in the world at that point. Um, But somebody's got to, you got to go into a studio and record the songs. That's a huge jump from I'm in a band to we're going to scrounge up money to go into a studio. What's the leap from we're a band to we're a recording band. Since I came from hip hop, I, I, there's a punk rock DIY aesthetic to hip hop. Like yeah. you, you can do it yourself. And so it didn't, whereas if I, maybe if I came from like rock music, it would have felt further away. But to me, it didn't feel far away. Like I had my task M four track. I, I worked that thing. Like I'd make, you know, it was four, it was four tracks. So I'd take three, make stuff, bounce those to the one. So now it's mono. Make two more, bounce those to the two, and then we'd be putting stuff on three and four. So it was a lot of tracks to like get the most out of this thing. And you once you committed them, you couldn't go back. So our stuff sounded crazy. But um, I, 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 we took a meeting with. Um, at one point, we got a call back early, early on too. Like we'd only made a few demos. Is this zero? Is this zero with with Mark? But it'll. I, there's a reason I mention it. So in the early, early part of this, I made some. I, Mark and I made some demos on f- cassette four track, and we got a meeting with this guy named Paul Pontius at Immortal, and we were like, oh well, that's Incubus's label. Like this is the path, right? And he met with us, and he was basically like. You know, hey, what you're doing is interesting, uh, but in particular, one of the moments in the meeting was, "What did you? Where did you record this?" And I explained it to him, and he was like slack jawed, looking at me, and he's like, "Dude, I don't know what you were doing, but you, this does not sound like a cassette four track recording. Like, I can't wait to hear what it'll sound like when you studio. actually get the proper gear and you mic up some drums or you." you know, multi-track these beats that you're making. Um, 
so fast forward to later, we got Chester in the band. We were doing a lot of that, trying out demos in studios. Um, and I learned, we, I, I learned, we learned a ton. Like we got, it was like kid in a candy store. You know, you're just able to like play with all these things that you had always dreamed of playing with. So we were on fire, just like so happy, so creative, making all this great stuff, playing shows. And then we made the rounds again and met with all the labels again. Now we've got Chester. I mean, I think we even played, like we played A Place for My Head from Hybrid Theory was on our set list. Forgotten was on our set list. An early version of Runaway was in our set list. We played for everybody and nobody called back. It was, we were right back where we started. We just like, it didn't work. And so we had this moment of like, well, they don't get it. They don't like it but we feel like we've got all this momentum and we're learning a lot and we're getting better and our friends love the music. Like, so kind of like, well, then fuck those guys. Like, we're just going to keep being a band and we'll, somebody else, somebody will figure it out at some point. They're going to have to. That's the decision that, uh, you know, that's the sink or swim moment. Yeah, it was because the first, can, the first you know, one. Yeah. The first one where yeah. it's like, you guys are a band, you you know the music's good, but nobody's biting. And there's a lot of like uh, there are a lot of famous bands who ha- who are who've played some hits for labels who didn't hear it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I uh, remember we met with Clive Davis that at that in that era that that moment. One of the last meetings we got, Clive came down to the studio and we were shook. I mean, you know, we knew what a big deal that was, and he said to us, he he was very honest. But, and he said, like, unfortunately, he's like, I like what you're doing. I think that it still needs a lot of development, but it's good. And he said, unfortunately, having heard you, I, I, we have a band that's in your lane. And he said, I don't, I make it a point to not sign multiple things that are too similar. And unfortunately, that's the case. So I can't sign you, but I think somebody will. And that was enough. That's like that huge. was really that was really kind. And he's a really honest guy. If yeah. he didn't feel that way. Well, nobody said else that. Yeah. said that to us. Like nobody else was willing to be like Do you know who that other band was? I don't. I don't. So curious. Like, yeah, me who's too. On, who was I have an who's like on a, Clive, who's on well, or Arista or whatever it was. Would it have been like the but the closest at one point I thought it was Kid Rock. And it, and then I don't I think I tried I like figured out <laughs> where a, he was or whatever, and yeah. I don't I don't think it was him. Um, were you guys uh, by the time Warner Brothers hears you? What, what happened between that and Warner Warner Brothers hearing you? And you know, famously, there were I believe you guys were Hybrid Theory, right? Wasn't yeah, the that band you, was called Hybrid, Hybrid Theory. When we got Chester, we changed the name to Hybrid Theory. From zero to Hybrid Theory. Yeah. How many shows did you play out as Hybrid Theory? Like probably not that many because you were recording. Most bands, the the format, like the thing most bands would do at the time was they would play shows constantly, as many shows as they could to get good. Um, we were more interested in writing and developing our sound, so we did one show every one to two months. The thing with that, that's also advice that. You know, this is an era where people actually practiced music together and wrote music together and lived with it and edited it versus now everyone writes and records the song often in the same day. So they don't have the time to work out 
the kinks and and the, the in like how the structure of songs go, how all that stuff. It seems like when you're focused on well, we just need to develop our sound and our you know, then you have the opportunity to actually grow as a musician versus as a performer. You know, it like puts the songwriting first in a way that probably helped in the end versus the you know no double entendre I guess kind of. And intended, it wasn't intended. But now they anyway. It did uh, help that song. It, it, it did help that song. But it did. It like you had this. You had the ability to to go through songs and you know uh, and probably make the songwriting better uh, versus worrying about how many people can we get to this show this weekend. How many people can we get to this show this weekend? It kind of yeah. like changes the focus to. I think I think artists today music. have the opposite problem. Actually, now that we talk about it in those terms i think people today have that the norm is to sit and make it make to develop your sound so much and focus so much on the curation of your identity of your brand on social media on your songs like what trends are happening and aesthetics and so on that they don't actually get out in front of people and make a number one get the experience of trying those songs out in front of a run of real human beings and number two get comfortable doing it so so the first one is when i play this song for people in a room how do they react what parts Mm, what parts of it are good what parts of it are not striking people and number two um getting on a stage and doing it like Remember when I was talking about things being unnatural? There's like so many unnatural things about performance. And if you're gonna, if your music career is gonna go anywhere as an artist, if it's gonna go anywhere, you gotta be good at that. And getting good at that takes thousands of hours. So what do you wanna have happen? Like work your way up to having a, a song that goes viral and then they're like, okay, you gotta play Jimmy Kimmel. And you're like, I've literally only Never played five played, shows. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. people are, you know lucky if they get past that point. Yeah, totally. Um, so hybrid theory gets signed. Jumped a bunch of things. Yeah. Before, you know. Yeah. I love that you're trying really hard to go chronological and I'm resisting it. And this is our entire relationship. I'm not doing that intentionally. No, I I I love I love this. It's sort of like a oh, it's a, you know, it's it's not going off the rails completely. It's like where like they it's like the train is leans on one side, leans on one side, but we're still going down the track. <laughs> if you're if people aren't following this, they can, you know, do something else. Um uh, <laughs> you know, uh but but okay, going back to Warner Brothers finally hear something. Oh, I know what you kind of asked. I they didn't know we got let in the back door at Warner. We didn't get signed signed. We the guy that was representing us at music publishing or at Zama Music Publishing got a job at Warner. He took us with him. He said, Yeah, this I'm I'm representing this band. Like I'd love to do demos of them uh at Warner. And so we did a demo deal there. And the more demos we recorded, the more they saw what we were doing and went, Oh, we get it. Yeah, we love this. Um the the so that was good. That's how we ended up at Warner. And the I'd say our advocates at Warner were very few and far between. Um, even the guy that signed us eventually became very like difficult in our process. So that was 
problematic. He, he, I mean, our whole first record, making our first record was a nightmare because of him and because of that. And then his boss, so he got, he's new at the company and he's got a new job. He's got a new boss and he's trying to impress the new boss. So everything's on the line. He's going to get fired. And we're one of the focuses now. Like we've got some momentum. People are starting to like the music we're doing, but they're like, basically like, don't fuck this up. And there was this really like um, this crazy moment when I remember we finished the song, um, we finished One Step Closer and it was going to be our first single. And at that point, the relationship was really, there was a ton of turmoil. Like he had already tried to kick me out of the band. Chester stood up for me. We knew that he was like trying to like really muck up our thing and we, why would they kick you out of the band? He was convinced, our A&R guy was convinced that Chester was the only, was the talent and that he went to him and he said, hey, dude, listen, like you're the talent. Like if, if we could build a whole band around you, like I don't know, you don't necessarily need the rest of these guys. So he was trying to like pull this like power play thing. And I think in his mind, he had a vision for it that it wasn't our vision. And I know that that's the case, but he thought if he got Chester on his side, then they could make it together, make his vision. And Chester basically, he left that conversation and then he came to us and he was like, this is what just happened. And we were like, oh no, that's fucking terrible. What did, we, what did you say? And, he said, and Chester goes, I told him to go fuck himself. Yeah. I was like, amazing. Okay, and then we were just totally galvanized. And so every, at every turn, we, he knew he had shown his hand right? The A&R guy. And then we knew we had to stick to our guns. And so there was this, like, that dynamic kept playing out over and over again. And at one point we finished One Step Closer. They chose it as a single. It had to go get mixed. And we, whoever was going to mix One Step Closer was going to mix the whole album. That was our, like, marching orders. That was what we were going to do. And we said, it's going to be Andy Wallace because he mixed Nevermind and he mixed a couple of other more recent, smaller records that we loved, but he gets the, whether he likes rap music or not, he gets the shape of rap songs. He's, his, his songs knock, they've got like bass to them. They've got like that EQ shape and all of these other mixers don't have that. We loved it. And we, we, were, gonna, we were like, it's gonna be Andy Wallace mixing, it's gonna be, Brian Gardner mastering because Brian did the Dr. Dre shit and Eminem, who was about to come out, but at the time not. Anyway, the point is big, big bass, big bass Brian. Yeah. Um, so that was our that was what was happening. Period. And the next thing we knew, we got a CD of our of One Step Closer that had been mixed by somebody else. And we're like, what is this? And it turns out it was our NR guy's boss. He had given our, ma our multi-tracks to his boss to mix our song without asking us. And he gave us the CD and he had on the song, One Step Closer, if you don't know the song, it's basically intro, verse, very short pre-chorus, chorus, verse, pre-chorus, chorus, and then a big surprising bridge that was inspired by groups like Run, uh, uh, Rage Against the Machine. The, the bridge is the shut up when I'm talking to you freak out screaming bridge for us this was the calling card of the band and the song like we wanted when the first time you heard lincoln park we wanted you to go wow this is a great song 
and then get to the bridge and be like, holy shit, this is like in a, like a religious moment. It's crazy. And you just wanted to go to the concert and scream it. The mixer took the bridge and copied and pasted it to the front of the song, thereby ruining the surprise of the structure. He, he, he showed that he didn't understand us. He didn't understand the song. He didn't even understand how to properly tell a story. It'd be like, I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler for anybody, but it'd be like starting the movie Star Wars, the original Star Wars movie four, and then alluding to the death of Obi-Wan Kenobi at the front of the movie. You'd be like, well, I'm, I'm not gonna watch this movie now, right? That's what happened. He put this thing together and we were just like pulling our hair out going, oh my God, we're screwed because we can't, we, we can't convince our, gate, our gatekeepers to let us be ourselves. And we had this like it almost, what is Don Gilmore? It almost fell the apart. producer of the album was he on board with you guys or was he? He was. He had his hands tied. He was so screwed. He was like, I at the time we were livid. We were so mad at him. Had complete loss of faith because he was supposed to be our like like protector. Like he was supposed to protect the creative process and help us achieve the things that we wanted to to achieve. And, it, and he wasn't doing that. He was letting those guys in the room all the time. And because he let them were, have the multis, yeah. right? Like Don was the one who let them have it. And we were so disappointed and so upset. And we just were barely able to hang on to the record that we were making and tell those guys no. And we, in every, I think it was that point at which um, a guy our, who, who was our, became our product manager at Warner uh, Records. Um, shout out to Peter Standish. Peter was brand new with us. Um, he had been there for years, but we didn't know him. And he, he reached out and he said, hey guys, like um, I know some of the things that are going on. There were a lot, a lot of other issues too, by the way, other than the ones I just described. But Peter came to us and he said, I know um, you guys are having a lot of problems right now. And... Um, it's gonna be okay. We're gonna sort through them and, and you're gonna make a great, finish a great record and we're gonna put this thing out and put everything behind it. But I need you to get a manager. We can no longer be, we didn't have a manager. And he, he's like, we can no longer be doing this. I think one of your problems is that you've got this direct line of communication and nobody there to protect you who has any gravitas with the label, get a manager. We did. And that's how we, I think that's how we were able to stick to our guns at the end of the day. We hired Andy, uh, it was Rob McDermott at Andy Gould and those guys were able to go to the label and say, stop it. Like, you, you signed this band, you, when you were letting them do their thing, look how good it was going. They've got great music. We know it's gonna be, we know it's gonna have a shot. So if you keep doing what you're doing, you're gonna mess it up. Well, shout out to Rob. Uh, who is also my manager for a very short amount of time. Um, so uh, uh, I like Rob though. Um, when, uh, how soon after the success of One Step Closer did those same A&R guys take credit? Immediately. I mean, they were like, I mean, I think that some of those folks were even saying that they had written things on the record. They, they wrote nothing on the record. They didn't, that's You know, you guys end up, obviously, right? you know, Crawling in the end, there's so many big songs on on that, and that you know, um, there are so many questions to ask about the personal 
uh, how you how you reacted personally. But while we're talking about the label, did that did the success of those songs tie you to those A and R people for the rest of? No, until- I mean it was the opposite. It was as soon as we had success, then you could say. Then actually, it's a good if you don't mind me fast forwarding us, please. Can I do that? Yeah, um, I'm keeping track. <laughs> By the time we finished the hybrid theory cycle, uh-huh. so that's how it started. By the time we finished it, hybrid theory was the biggest selling, the best selling album on the planet Earth. Um, it felt like everything we did, everything we touched turned to gold. Everything we did worked, and it was like it almost felt too easy at a certain point. That I shouldn't say easy. It just felt like here's our effort. Let's check that box, and then we'd check the box, and we'd move to the next thing. Checking the box was things like, okay, I want to be headlining. The, we're opening this festival this year. I want to be headlining this festival next year. And we do it. It's like, that's a stupid, that's a crazy thing to say. But we, those things were happening for the band. We got to the end of the record and we didn't even, because we were so young and naive and things came so quickly, we didn't really... Like, like we didn't know how hard it could have been, and we were at that. We were at a point with the label where, yeah, they were just they were like they trusted us. They were like, wow, like you guys really just every your intuition is so good. You're very strategic. You're very creative. You make, you know, not only do the do, do they like the music, but we were we were helping write all the marketing plans and promotion and stuff. We'd have like these like long meetings over and over again with each of those departments and tell them how we thought the fans would best experience the thing we were doing. Um, so for example, a thing called street teams were a thing back then. We were, when we started out, we were looking at other people's street teams and seeing where we can improve. By the time we finished the first album, everybody was just looking at us and just whatever we did, they copied and so we were writing the playbook on how to put out a record, how to put out a single, how to put out a tour, what to do on tour. We were doing meet and greets after every single show. We did a meet and greet every... Ch- my, my goal at that point, and I said this like very publicly, I want my autograph to, meet, to, to be worth $0. I want to sign so many autographs that you couldn't sell one because everybody's got one. And we, we signed so much stuff. We saw so many fans. And that work was fun work and it paid off. It's funny because I, I I naturally go to the poor Chester whose voice had to sing over you guys night after night after <laughs> night. And then you're saying like, oh, we're going to send all these autographs. That guy is probably panicking, being like, "It's so loud here. I gotta save my voice." Maybe it wasn't not, him. Like, it wasn't him. He wasn't there. We had those guys. That that sentiment was in the band. Yeah, but surprisingly, it wasn't. It wasn't Chester. him. Uh, he, just, he grew up in like punk rock, punk, punk rock and hard rock shows. So like, and the other thing is that like screaming vocals were like not the hardest thing for him. Like the high pitched singing vocals were harder. Crawling yeah. was harder to sing than one step closer for him. So, so yeah, he, he wasn't, his voice wasn't worn out because we were doing a lot of screaming and he's like, yeah, that's easy for me to do. You know, when you talk about, well, you know, these, these kids now, they might have a, they might have a hit, then they have to play Kimmel. Still, if you go play Kimmel, there's, there's TVs and that can be really 
uh, or cameras, and that can be um, intimidating. But there's there's 250 people there, maybe at a at a taping of of a Jimmy Kimmel, you know, give or take. Uh, you were playing in front of, I don't know, eighty thousand some nights. It went from. I don't uh, think we got there at that point. Okay, I went there. We weren't there yet. All right, twenty. Very 000? very big. We went from we went from 150 people, and then two years later, probably on the high end, 30 to 40 k. Yeah. Okay. It's still. I'm not, just saying that's half not, as many people. It's not a but at a certain it's point, not, it's you can't huge. comprehend the difference. You you are a one human who's gone from like Agora High School. Agora oh, Hills. We no, we weren't. We hadn't finished that like, thing that you're describing. We, I didn't have a house at this point. I didn't have yeah. a. I didn't even have an apartment. I let my apartment go because we were on the road so much that I didn't need a home base in LA. So I just, when I came home, I lived with my then girlfriend, now wife Anna. I'd like go to her place. My stuff was in a storage unit. I didn't have a house. Like I didn't matter. And the, the other guys were pretty much the same way. Like we were completely in transition in terms of our lives, it wasn't until the end, probably the end of the second album, three, four years later, that we wrapped our heads around the- What had just happened. Yeah, the change <laughs> yeah. in our lives yeah. and what that meant. And, and actually at that point, in the, it, it, you know, we had, we had achieved, we had, we had met so many of our goals, we achieved so many of our goals that we realized Okay, the goals after our second record can no longer be um, number goals and like achievement goals in that sense because we'll set ourselves up for disaster, both both like in terms of our mental health and in terms of our like um, the health of our band, like as a as an enterprise in the world. Um, it can't just be about more, more, more all the time because we've already, you can't probably, we, the, it was a perfect storm. Like we're not going to do another hybrid theory. So we need to set the goals at things that are more attainable or more healthy. Or and those artistic or it's like what you can control. They became, it, yeah. goals came, became like, I need to be, we need to be hundred percent happy with every single song we put on a record or put out. We want to strive for this level of artistry or achievement in these, like in the engineering of it, in the songwriting of it, um, we'd love this type of aesthetic that kind of, you know, redefines, like after our second record, we wanted to redefine the DNA of the band. We wanted to flatten it and go to like to, to the foundation and rebuild a new thing. Um, you know, there, one of the, one of the things I wanted to talk about that it's not really discussed in the other stuff that I've, uh, in the other Mike Shinoda interviews in the way that I think uh, that's interesting in, in the conversations we've had. If you look at the evolution of who the producer is on Linkin Park albums and also if you start adding in Fort Minor, if you start adding in you know, the Jay-Z records, the... Um, like you said, it took Rick Rubin to be like, no, you know, you're actually the producer. You know, it goes, Don Gilmore's the producer, but I know how you work. And there's no way it was really just Don Gilmore, although a legend in what he's done. It was definitely, you know, you were there the whole time. The sound of Linkin Park and, uh, you know, 
shout out to Brad, shout out to you know the his guitar playing, Chester's voice is Chester's voice, but the author of the track, the often the author of the song as well, it is a lot of Mike Shinoda. When did you start gaining the confidence to say, I would like to be credited as the producer? Did it take Rick on the third album to say, you're this? Was it the success of Fort Minor that gave you the confidence of I can be, I am myself within this structure? When did your independence, when, did, when was the moment where you're like, I'm in Lincoln Park, but I am Mike Shinoda. I think the Rick conversation was pivotal. Um, Where were you in that? We was were it a at, literal? It was a we literal at, So on on minutes to midnight, our third album, we we worked with Rick, and he, um, when we did our first meeting with him, uh, we we were with him for like an hour, hour and a half, I think. And one of the most important moments there was that, you know, he asked, what kind of record do you want to make? And everybody in the band, to the man, described a version of reinvention and that we didn't want to do the things that we were known for. And we know that's scary and we knew that it's risky. And that wasn't a problem for us. And he basically said, I love that. That's the answer that I was really hoping I would hear from you. So we got into it with him. We recorded at um, what they called the Houdini Mansion. It's the, the, his studio um, that he used to have on Laurel Canyon. Um, and uh, it's a couple, like I think it's like three story. I think it's three stories. It's kind of two stories plus. Um, home where the electricity is like going out half the time. Like it's kind of, it was kind of a nightmare. Um, but it was a good nightmare. And uh, there was a moment when we were sitting there and he said, you know, he was like, oh, well, you know, you're the, you're the, the common thread through the first two records and now is you. Like you're the, you've been the band's producer, in band producer. Nobody else. It was the context of the conversation was he was saying, um, no, no other bands that I've worked with work like you. You guys are very unique. And I think that adds to the, that's probably pivotal to your sound is the way you construct the songs you use me meaning me you use uh the daw the, the recording software as an instrument and you play the song you write the song with the daw you you construct it like digitally and cut things up and chop things and formulate ideas um the way a guitar player would use their guitar and i thought that was like I wouldn't have known, he worked with so many artists. I've not worked with so many, any other artists or any other producers other than Don. And so to hear that perspective on it, I thought, I went, wow, that's, I didn't know that. And, and so it, towards the end of that, I asked for the production credit, co-production credit on the record because of what he had said. And he, there was no argument, there was no conversation or anything. The band just, didn't say anything. Every, no, everybody just said, okay. Did you get... Uh, you don't have to answer this, uh, but did you get compensated differently? We had, I can't answer that like, like in detail. Um, not, not that I can't, but I think it's unfair yeah. to the guys. Um, what I would say is 
in the, like as a general idea in the history of the band, um, we did things, whether it's the, you know, the, 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 like, what are you talking about? Like publishing and stuff like that. I don't know. Ver- I mean, you versus- know, the person who's the producer gets different point structures. Right, the person right. who's the main songwriter, you know, sometimes gets different compensation, especially right. if they're writing the tracks. If there's like, you know, I just didn't know how the dynamic within the band evolves with the credit. Evolves, yeah. So it evolved. It changed from period to period. And usually in our band, it changed in the direction of like de- democracy or or kind of evening and leveling the playing field for everybody. Um, well, I think one thing that 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 you know other writers and um, producers that I talk to, if they've got a if they've got a group dynamic going on. One thing that I, I tell them about it is that there was a moment in the beginning of the band, earliest stage, I, I wrote a track, right? And then and Brad would help with that track and some of the other guys, you know, per- peripherally would help as well. Like I think, I think my, main contrib- my main collaborator was Brad and then my second tier was the other guys. Everybody participated, everybody helped. Um, I was the one steering the ship. I was the one who they would leave and I'd sit with the computer and edit and edit and edit and change and put more ideas and so on. And then we'd take in the studio and work with Don and so on. But we'd put the vocals at the end. We'd do the track and then we'd put the vocals on. And if the vocals weren't working, the track didn't change. Like we just threw the song out. Mm. That was stage one. Stage two... The other guy said, hey, we've had a lot of success and I, person in the band, have, have never been really like a lead writer on anything. I want to write. I want to like submit songs. I think I can do it too. And we all said, I said, great, I would love the help because I feel like there's a lot of pressure on me and we're throwing away a lot of songs. We started generating tons of demos and by the end of that process of the 12 songs, 11 of them were mine. So at the end of that, that was the second stage where we said, okay, let's democratize it and let everybody participate. And then at the end of the day, they were picking my songs over their own. So that was a kind of a game changer too. It was enlightening and also very, very reassuring to have the other guys say, you know what? I gave it a try. I prefer your songs to my songs. Like you're a better writer, you're a better producer. And so in that, then from that, then we went into the third stage, which is the bulk of our career after, after album three was, I was actively steering the ship and taking on that responsibility in a more like assertive way and really pulling the guys in as it was my job to pull them in as often as I could and make sure they were as happy as they could be and that they really were heard on everything whether that was them saying I I want you know I don't like this lyric I don't like this guitar part I don't like you know the shape of these things I do love these things let's not change them please don't get rid of them they would fight with each other over things that not fight, but they would say like, one person would say it must be black and the other person would say it must be white. And I had to be the one in between going, okay, like here's, here's some solutions. Let me try and help this. It was design challenges basically. 
I mean, that makes that's what the, I mean. Really, that's just that's you bifurcating your role. There's a time when you're the producer, like by pulling in the bandmates and giving them an opportunity to be heard. That's a good producer of a band. You know, there are times when you are Mike Shinoda, the guy in the band who needed to be heard as a musician. There's the you know, I think that's hard for a lot of musicians where. You know, sometimes you're the you're the engineer. You yeah, know? yeah. Sometimes I'm in in a room. It's like I can play all the instruments. I mean, I'm not great at all the instruments, but I can play all the instruments. I can write lyrics and melodies. I can produce. But there's a, sometimes I'm in a room, and my job is to make sure the song just gets done. Sometimes my job, you know, and and you you can be a musician and not be so defined. It's sort of your skill set in that band is that you could be all of the things. If you needed to be the singer, you could be that. If you needed to be the the beat maker, you were that. Yeah. You know the way. I mean, and and the way I would write a song back then, from from that second stage on, I also was like stretching myself and learning how to write differently. And in the process with Rick, one thing that changed a lot was that I stopped doing the. It took a long time for me to stop doing this because I was so comfortable with it. But doing the track and the vocals, uh, the top line separately, and not changing the track, um, Rick had. We had a conversation with Rick one time where he was like, "Hey, well, you know, have you ever written a song where it's just the instrument and the vocal start and starting yeah. with just an instrument and the vocal and no track, and then built the track around that?" And I was basically like, well, rarely, like a couple of, of occasions where it kind of went that way. And he's like, what songs? And I was like, in the end, and breaking the habit. Yeah. And he's like, that, that seems, seems like it worked pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, I know. Yeah, but I, but I, I, it wasn't, it took me many years to get comfortable doing that as a primary option. Um, and once I got there, I'm still getting better at it, actually. But once I got there, um, it fundamentally changed the quality of the work. I think the quality of the work got so much better because you, you know, on on our fourth album, A Thousand Sons, it was really starting to happen. And I can tell where we were changing tempos and transposing the songs and removing and adding parts to work better with the vocal, to work better with the concept. It was the first time that we were like addressing like, um, I know this is a little like nerdy, but if we had a concept going on in the lyrics, we could make the melody work with the concept and make the sounds of the song uh, complement or yeah, yeah. complement or rub against the actual like meaning of the song. It's very it was a, it's a much more dynamic and difficult way to write. But when uh, it strikes you as like, oh, this, we could do this. Like that's, it's like, feels like magic. I got to write with you guys on One More Light, which uh, was the first time that we met. You, you guys were bringing in some outside writers and uh, I got to work with Chester. And it's really interesting that the song we did Halfway Right you and I, I think we wrote three, two or three songs, and one of them you release afterwards. Uh, you know, the song that we wrote. I, Chester sent me some lyrics. He would he he would text me lyrics, mm-hmm. and I was like, man, these are really these are really heavy. And he talked about. He said to me once in the songwriting side, he said 
man, if I walked in with the song yesterday, all of you guys would have notes for me. Yeah, you know? that's true. I've said that about. I think that's true with a lot of writers anyway, but he said that. That's you know? no, but our band, the, one of the toughest things in our band is that everybody, everybody always had notes. Like you, 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 they, they got in a, you know, the, the horror stories about Chinese democracy, the Guns N' yeah. Roses album, where it's like the, almost like the album that would never see the light of day. They just went around and around and around on it. We were always teetering on the brink of having that problem um, because the notes, because everybody's very creative. And, and so they'd always have ideas and they'd always want to try everything. And this culture of like leaving no stone unturned developed and... I think there was a, it's a double-edged sword. Like, well, the, the beauty of that approach is that, you know, you get to take your time and really find the weird creative solutions that you wouldn't have found any other way. But the, the tough part is that it's a grind. It really is hard. It's a lot of, like our third album was what, like where we kind of started that process. And it took 18 months to make that record. It was impossible. It was impossible. I was the one. I was the one at the, and around month like fifteen, where I was like, I took Rick aside and I was like, I can't do this anymore. It's a very, it's too hard to be juggling fifty songs at that point. We had a hundred and fifty demos, and I, we had managed to whittle it down to fifty or forty. And I said, I can't. They're expecting me to, to, you know address their notes on 40 songs or 45 songs. And I don't have that. I can't do it. It's too much work. Right. So his, his point is, if you know the story about yesterday, Chester's point was that the original version of yesterday was called scrambled eggs. Yeah. Those were the original, that was instead of yesterday, it was scrambled eggs. Um, and you know, our band, everybody assumed that every song was scrambled. Everybody assumed that every song was that, that, oh, it's going to take a long time for it to get to the yes, beautiful end product. Chester's point was, it. we're so used to doing that that they couldn't recognize when a song came in that was good because they just want to change stuff. And then we do all that changing and we didn't end up basically running in a big, huge circle and coming back to the original idea. Um. I know we don't have like a ton of time and there's so many questions regarding where the band is now and who everyone is when they're not the Lincoln Park from 2000 to 2017. <laughs> you know, obviously Chester's passing is devastating and enlightening in all of the ways. Um and I know you've had to answer a lot about Chester. So, Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, in the current state of Lincoln Park and knowing how you've been, you know, the things we work on, it's not all Mike Shinoda music, although we have had, you know, one song with that, but you're writing for a lot of other people. I, I you know, have been. Um, but you, I know you guys also are releasing some... Yeah, the Meteor. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. So with the Meteor sorry. 20, we released like a handful. It's a huge box set. Five vinyl records, four CDs, three DVDs, book, art, so on and so forth. Uh, the the, the kind of like keystone of the whole thing, the main... Um, I think the most interesting thing in there is there's an album of lost demos and all of those are like basically half of it is brand new songs that are old songs from the era and we didn't really, we basically just presented them, we polished them up and presented them and didn't like write anything new on them or touch them or whatever. They're, they're, they're stuck in a time capsule and just yeah. brought them out and polished it. And um, the song Lost, there's a song called Fighting Myself, there's a song called More the Victim song called massive these are all like demos from the time that in you know 20 years ago like all of the ones i just named like they could have been on the record um in the spirit of talking about songs outside of the mike chinoda uh lincoln park uh mm. umbrella uh you and i have a song coming out soon with the grandson Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, in this uh, segment of what would grandson ask Mike Shinoda on, and the writer is, he asks, he said, uh, ask something about the existential nature of some of the bigger songs, like in the end and numb. Oh, I thought this was going to be a joke. No, I thought these he massive, went, went serious. Oh, he wow. went serious. These uh, <laughs> Jordan goes serious. These massive anthems uh, that speak to a generational angst. How does uh, how do you compartmentalize and handle those feelings, um, whether they're your own or whether it's uh, the ones that fans express to you? Like how, the way people interpret your songs, like "Numb," mm. songs like "In the End." Uh, how do you interpret the emotion? I've had such a weird relationship with that subject. Um, like so, for context. You know, on one hand, you've got what Jordan is referring to, which is like a lyric that's so much about like such deep emotions or like the, the like questions about mortality or questions about like why am I here or like fundamental feeling like like the song is about like as a listener, you hear a song, you go, oh man, the fundamental human flaw that they are talking about is my fundamental human flaw yeah. that I deal with every day. It's so me, this song is me and I'm gonna tattoo it on my back, 18 inches big, right? And they do it. On, when I hear that, I go, oh my God, that's like so intense. Like I'm uncomfortable that how intense that is. 
I also rewind in my head, I jump back to the year 2000 when we wrote a song like Crawling, which was about those things. It's such an like, like in terms of like the potency of what we were writing about, we were very serious about it. It was very emotional. It was very like, um, yeah, it was intense. And then I remembered seeing a video of a cheerleading squad doing a dance to it, to crawling. And I'm like, uncomfortable in the complete opposite way where I'm like, you aren't listening to the lyrics yeah. that I poured my heart and soul into Chester wrote, actually that one I should say Chester because Chester wrote a lot of those words. He like, this is not a joke, right? Yeah. Like in my yeah. head, I was, it was, it, I was mad for the opposite reason. Yeah. Um, you have to like, as you do this for a while, like you got to grow up and realize like, yeah, it you're becomes, gonna, you're going to fly in it's one, also, one once, direction. Once the, the song comes out, it's theirs. Yes, you know, it's like, that's, that's right. The, that's, that's the hard thing. Exactly like, right. once it, you know, that's exactly right. All right. Um, I know that uh, we will end up doing 10 of these interviews. I can tell that. But in, in the spirit of ending this one, uh, uh, we, we are going to do uh, first the, the, our last segment, which is a five for five. I'm going to list five things. Just tell me what comes off the top of your head. Oh, I forgot we were going to do this. Yeah, so, okay. so the first one is Web3. Okay. First thing that comes to my head. Um, how how you'll get like a sentence, a couple know. sentences. There are no rules, man. I'm yeah, not, I'm not gonna kick you out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just I I think my reaction is it's it's I feel a lot of promise is there, and I feel like uh the path has been obscured by a lot of garbage. So the promise of Web three, whoever's in it. Um, they will have to deal with and you know communicate to the rest of the world like what's the real benefit and how that's separate from the scamminess and the you know shilling that goes on. Yeah, uh, that's probably that's the best answer you could give for that. All right, let's uh, Twitch. Um, Twitch was a necessary connection for me for a period of time. 2020, I, I went on Twitch and it was, it was a perfect fit for being, uh, for communing with like-minded people. Chester. <laughs> uh, I mean, I can't. There's two. Somebody asked me the other day, like in, in an interview, like, what's your purpose in life? To you? To me, they said huh. that. What was, was your like, answer? <laughs> it's a really big Well, but question. the point, I mean, my point <laughs> is that that's like, it's such a big, there's yeah. so much there. Similarly, like there's so, with you ask about Chester, like there's just so much there yeah. that I I would be doing him a disservice. I'd be doing myself a disservice yeah. to like try and explain it or simplify it. I think that's one of the, you know, we are also used to those kinds of like sound bites and stuff that, it's um it's hard to not try and do that to everything, but some things are too complicated to do that too. Well then this one won't be any better, but Anna. Yeah, same. Yeah. Same. I'd say right now, when one thing that is like so great about my wife Anna is that she the we have such like a complimentary um 
like growth path. Like we're, we are not, we're very different people. Um, and like, as we've matured and gotten older, I think we constantly grow. I, I like get challenged by her in ways that I don't even realize it's something I need to learn and just then vice versa. Actually, it's usually when that happens to me, it's usually like, I don't realize it's, I'm being challenged and that I need to figure something out. And, and the other, and, and in, on her side, it's probably me like literally saying like, this is an issue we need to like address. Not, mm-hmm. not, not, this is not me saying, hey, you need to change. This is me saying like, have you noticed that like in our family, like this keeps happening or whatever? Like, what can we do to make this like weird thing not happen anymore? And it's her having patience to listen to me do that dumb thing over and over. Funny. <laughs> it could be something as stupid as like, God, we're so messy. Like, okay, so that's an, that's an, I, oh, I'm, I'm a super, I'm like a, um, I like to have things a little more like organized and in place and clean. And she cares less about that. Mm. And we have kids and they, they care not at all about that. And so the lesson for me is chill the fuck out and be cool with other people living the way they want to live and her she has to have patience with me (laughs) and she also is like okay like i can try and tidy this our little universe up a little but it's that's what i feel like that's what a family is right totally it's like this like push and pull of like oh let's just like i don't know It's, it's you adapt out of love yeah. Like you adapt because you love the family, you adapt certain things and it always takes a little bit of effort. And the effort's good effort. And the on um, this random one, uh uh, but I just think it's kind of interesting. Uh K Rock. Oh my god, K Rock. That's a good one. Because we were talking about that earlier. K Rock was like it was such a special, it's almost like I never put this together, but you know how some people talk about like CBGBs or yeah, like of course. the way people talk about. I hear some people talk about punk rock, and they don't mean like the style of music; they mean the moment in time. Like there was a there was a thing that happened. Um, some kids do that with emo. I feel like I feel like K Rock for those of us that grew up when it was doing what it was doing. It was it was by the way it was Power One Hundred Six and it was K Rock. And I loved both passionately. I was obsessed, and because it, it was a it was a moment in time. It was like a culture. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. I know we've talked about doing it for a long time. Uh, you know, my one of my favorite anecdotes about about how you know everyone talks about how grounded you are, and this is this is these are examples of that. Uh, the idea that when you guys would fly private. You'd land, and you and Ch- <laughs> you and Chester would go in a van while the other guys and Dave, and Dave would go in a van while the rest of the guys are getting into like nicer cars. Yeah. Or, you know, it's like you guys had the opportunity to to land somewhere. You 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 would fly private for efficiency, but you'd land, and you would you know you could have been picked up in a, in an Escalade, but you chose to get picked up in a van. Like there's there's some of those things. Like um, I remember asking you. Uh, that you were flying out of Burbank and uh, not to blow up your spot, but uh, and you were like uh, talking about flying an airline that I know doesn't have a first class, and I was like, well, why 
where you know why are you guys why not, are you doing, why are you that? doing that and and you're like I don't want my kids growing up like that oh yeah and um yeah and I think what that says is it says more than you know even in a session with you no artist no writer feels like oh I'm with this guy who belongs in the Hall of Fame I'm with uh, a guy who wants to make a cool record with his friends and you keep it um, because that's just who you are. You were that in, at the peak of Lincoln Park when you could have been picked up in a limo, you were picked up in a van. That's the person I want to write with. I don't need to write. Like the other guy that I write with, I go in, I do that one session, and I don't need to hang out with that guy. I don't call that guy to talk to. Mm. I don't, you know, we're not hanging out if you're the guy, because that guy's living a life that I don't, I don't lead, you know? But you're living the life of something that's like about keeping the connection authentic. And that's why, you know, my wife and I talk about that. You want to have friends where you can go deep right away, mm -hmm. you know, where it's not just about, hey, what are you working on? I mean, maybe we talk about that, but it's, it's not just that. And you live in, you live five levels deeper and more authentic and more, you're not just a grounded person. You're like, you're part of the thing. And I think I, a lot of I think a lot I, of us look for that that yeah. you know when you when you you know it like the 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 songwriter version of kind of what you're talking about is when you go into a session with one person and they go like they're immediately focused on the hit. Yeah. Like oh this is a hit this is not a hit. It's like in my in my experience this yeah. is not my opinion. This is my like what I've seen happen for yeah. as long as I've been doing it is like how the fuck do you know? Yeah. You don't know. Like there've been for every time people are convinced that it's gonna work, like there are a lot of people who are convinced something else was gonna work that did not work. Yeah. And when for me, putting my setting that as a goal is a very flimsy goal. That's a very flimsy platform to stand on. Yeah. The other stuff about, you know, quality and community and having fun and doing good work and loving what you're doing. That is so much more important. You're gonna be, but part partially because you're gonna be able to, like, hang your hat on that. Well, thank you. Thank you. This episode is produced by Joe London, Hypnosis, Mega House Management, and myself. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan. Signing off.